Hi, this is Bob Groves, and welcome to the Provost podcast series that, that we call Faculty in Research. And after a little twisting of arms, I'm, I'm pleased to welcome university professor, professor of religion and international affairs and of Islamic studies at Georgetown, John L. Esposito. I'm overjoyed that we have him with us today. John's also the founding director of the Al-Walid Center for Muslim Christian Understanding, an important center within the School of Foreign Service, and also the Bridge Initiative, Protecting Pluralism and Ending Islamophobia in SFS. He is the author of 55 books. Uh, many of them explore Islam and modern society, political activities, orientation, globalization in Islam, the role of women, peace building, and most recently, Islamophobia. Some of these have been written with a popular audience in mind, and they've been very valuable in explaining Islam to interested publics. He has served as president of the American Academy of Religion and the Middle East Studies Association of North America. He's been a member of the World Economic Forum's Council of 100 Leaders and the European Community European Network of Experts on De-Radicalization. So, John, I'm, I'm so happy I talked you into doing this little podcast. And I, I suspect a lot of the people listening to this are interested in how you wandered in, how, how you evolved uh, in your adolescence and in choosing religious studies and Islam as a, as a focus of, of your life. That's a good question, because uh, my life has been different than a lot of other, other people's in the sense that from a very early age, I wanted to be a Catholic priest and uh, left home at the age of 14 and be, uh, eventually joined the Capuchin Franciscans and was with them in a series of friaries and monasteries and left at the age of 24. I then, after a short period in business, decided it was boring for me. I uh, went to graduate school and studied theology because I'd already been doing theology. And so I became a young Catholic theologian teaching at Rosemont College for a number of years, uh, teaching theology. I had to do a PhD at a certain point and something new happened. In the old days, the only place you could get a PhD in Catholic theology was at a Catholic university. And I decided that I'd had a total Catholic education and I'd like to do something else. And Temple University began a new program in world religions. And so I would be able to go there and major in Catholic studies and then minor in two other religions. Well, I had to take a course in world religions. Everybody did. As a result, first of all, I never then took a course in Catholic studies, but I uh, wound up uh, studying Hinduism and Buddhism and was going to do a dissertation in Hinduism. When I told the chairman of the department he was supportive, but said that I ought to also take something in Islam. And I was very resistant. It was the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, I knew nothing about Arabs and Muslims. There was a book and a movie called The Exodus. And given the way it portrayed Arabs, I thought, why bother? And I mean, I should mention, I was born and raised in cosmopolitan New York in a totally Italian neighborhood. So culturally, you know, my horizon was very limited. But he insisted that I take it with a Muslim scholar that was coming. And I agreed to just take the one course. Like all graduate professors, he thought I should do a PhD. And I just insisted I would only do the one course. 
he then had me come in and uh, fill out an application. I said, what's this for? He said, to study Arabic at the University of Pennsylvania. I said, why would I do that? He said, to get a PhD. And he had me sit down and fill it out. And I was married and I thought, I shouldn't tell him what I really think and where to get off. I'll just go along with it. And I wound up getting a fellowship to study Arabic. And eventually the fellow who taught me ran a, the Middle East Center for Arab Studies in Lebanon, which was a major British school for all of their people in the Middle East. And he offered me a scholarship to go there. And I just backed into the field. I went into the field when there were no jobs. I finished my degree in 1974 when there was maybe one job in the United States, in the Midwest. My mentor said he would help me by getting me a job in Gaddafi's Libya or in South Africa's apartheid state. And I couldn't see myself doing that. And so I managed to get a job teaching world religions because I had been trained then by then in three or four religions. And nothing happened in my career until the Iranian revolution in terms of publishing or anything. There was very little interest, minimal publishing. No, no book contracts came in. They wouldn't even answer. Occasionally they'd say, great idea, no market. And then the Iranian revolution came. And I often say I owe my career and my first Lexus, the Ayatollah Khomeini. And it was from there that it really took off. It's, it's um, sort of indescribable. When you've gone through, oh, six years or a decade when people aren't interested, you don't get invited to speak or anything, uh, in five weeks, I had three book contracts. And that's what then built my publishing career. Uh, the reality of it is that I always say to students, and, it's, and it's, this is a true story, is that I'm the oldest of three boys and the least intelligent and probably the least interested in writing books. I never thought that I would, but because I got the contracts, it was amazing what it was like to see a book with my name on the spine, you know? I sort of say it was my first child because Gene and I haven't had children, so that was our big thing, you know? Uh, and from there, I was lucky enough to help build a field in many ways because there was not a big field in terms of teaching and interest. I could both write books about Islam and aspects of it, but I could also develop readers, collections of, of Arab and Muslim documents uh, for teaching. And so that's where it all went. So go back to those days when there were a few interested in what you were interested in and, and, and how did you cope? Do you, do you remember what your future aspirations were in those bleak days? My aspirations were, as my mother said when she saw me speaking in a, in a large audience in Maine and somebody asked her, what does it feel like to see him on the stage? She said, at least he has a job. Okay, so, I mean, my aspirations were to teach. I, I had moved on to Holy Cross, and I, I loved teaching there. I had been the chair of the religion department. But even there, I only taught world religions until the Iranian Revolution. So then it was just the, the sense of wanting to teach. I love teaching. I used to teach four courses a semester and hated when the summer came. I'm not quite that now, as I'm talking to the provost. I'm not looking for a heavier load. But the reality of it is that I also wanted to do this writing and publishing. And it was very difficult because if you were teaching a heavy load and you were running a department, which I did for nine years, it meant having to develop a real discipline. And I was lucky. For so many years, I had been getting up at 4.55 in the morning when I was in a monastery. So my natural body and preference was getting up early. And I've often had people ask me, how could you do all that you did? Well. I could, if I got up at five and exercised, I could then start at 7 a.m. And even if I had to teach, if my courses were in the early afternoon, I could get a chunk of time in. And that, 
that's what gave me the the space, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think it was it was both the thrill that I had teaching. I found also in not so much. I don't love writing books. People think that I do, or even putting them together. I'm sort of like the kind of author uh, who gets anxious, you know, about everything. Always has a sense that even if he's written a book a year ago, that he's not going to be able to do a good job on this one. But it was just that sense of accomplishment when it came out. And then the fact that you had a sense that very often you had an audience, you know, and you had an audience that would be reading. Uh, And remember that because of the Iranian revolution, and I could say similarly, when 9-11 came, that meant that you had a big audience, not only to invite you to speak, but you could see it in the numbers of books that were being sold. So you, you had a sense that you were having an impact. You know, I didn't feel, yeah, I didn't feel that I I was a super scholar, but only had a following of, you know, 20 people that, that read the book. And I think that just, that fed it. And then I think one of the things you find when you develop a reputation for anything is that people come to you, whether it's for speaking or writing, and that keeps you, that keeps you motivated. So yeah, that, that was it. So, so go back to that moment when you had this mentor that uh, was pushing you to a PhD. Did, did he see something in you that you didn't see in yourself? Or? No, I think he did. I mean, I, I think that one of the reasons why they wanted me to study with him was that he had just finished a book on Christian ethics. And they felt that given my background in Christian theology, there'd be a connection. But I think also, you know, I was one of his, his group coming in in some ways, I stood out. There were only about three or four of us who were not coming from the Muslim world. He was a fantastic man who every year got scholarships to bring a large number of people from all over the Muslim world to class. And I think there was a sense that, that he both, I think, related to me. He once said to my dad that my father was a physical father, and he was my intellectual father, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I found out later on when I got feedback, in fact, there was a dinner at Georgetown for me. And Syed Hussein Nasser, who's a very prominent scholar in the field, wound up getting up to say something. And he commented about what my mentor said about me. And it was very touchy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll have to get rid of that. But so, uh, so he loved you. Yeah, I mean, he, it was, yeah. we, he really took a, a, a very strong interest in me and, and, and I think he also saw me as somebody who would have a credibility because in certain audiences, because I wasn't a Muslim. Yeah. And I should also mention in this context, this is the amazing thing, that in those days, you had a group called the American Academy of Religion, okay? But there was no section on Islam in that organization. We had to go, a group of graduate students with my mentor, and get them to test us for a couple of years on whether or not there was a market, would it be interesting? So when years later I became president, a lot of people thought that there was a long history. Well, the history was that this world-class organization had no coverage of Islam at the time. Amazing. And so I think those are the things that really you know, kept me yeah. uh, interested. So the other thing I detect in this story is that you've developed a field that is really quite interdisciplinary. You're, you're attaching religion to politics and the economy and so on. And tell me about that journey. And, and did, you, did you bump up against uh, discipline 
oriented folks uh, <laughs> when you're doing yes. that? And how do you navigate those conflicts? Oh, yes. There's nothing like the Academy. I remember that when I was first beginning to publish, I was invited to Washington and there was a, a book launch and a, a small group of us were invited. It, it, it was a major center, think tank. And the person who wrote the book began by saying, well, uh, I'm a political scientist. And so my work would differ from people like John Esposito, you see. And I was writing about religion and politics, but he was, so there was always that. But the irony was that in those days, the social scientists never took religion seriously as a discipline because the sense was modernization and development theory. Uh, religion, therefore, was not significant in terms of the modern period. And even those that wrote on Islam, some of the great scholars, the shortest chapter in their book would be on the modern period, and it would be two centuries in 15 to 30 pages. So what happened, though, is when the field really took off and there were a lot of grants to get, then suddenly you had social scientists who had not only no problem coming in, but they would refer to themselves, some of them, as Islamicist, which is what our field is. So there was the, the, you know, the, the bumping back and, and forth. And you run into it even today when you, for example, when you discuss the question of terrorism and the role of religion in terrorism. But I think that's good. I think it's good for, for everybody involved. Uh, in my case, I really backed into it. I backed into it. I didn't make a choice because when I... Was came to time to write my dissertation, I had all kinds of ideas. And my mentors eventually talked me into writing on women and family law reform. And I remember thinking, this isn't what I want to do. You know, what do you mean I have to go look at Islamic law and then I have to look at socio sociological studies on women? You know? So it was that getting into doing an interdisciplinary uh -huh. uh, study, which then became a book, that then when the politics side kicked in, and, and I was one of the of a small group of people, myself, people like Bernard Lewis, whom I disagree with on a lot of issues, but one of the small group that was talking at a time before religion was being taken seriously, but seeing it in the field and saying that this was going to be a significant field. What I mean by that specifically is, I used to worry when I went to the American Academy of Religion in those early days, that somebody would come in and notice that there were only six people who came to the panel I was on. And, uh -huh. you know, and go back to Holy Cross and say, well, this is a dead field. Or I'd be invited to speak at a big organization and you'd have an audience of 15 people and maybe five would walk out, you know? But I got into it in a variety of ways, both dragged in by circumstance, but also then becoming excited about it, both from a teaching and a, a research uh, point of view. And it, you know, thank God it's sort of never left me. So in those early days, I assume, given that you're straddling fields all the time, that publications in traditional journals were tough because of disciplinary boundaries. Is that partially an explanation for choosing the book as the route to express your scholarship? Yeah, I think that, see, again, in the older days, the field and the organization I first belonged to was the American Oriental Society but was very much a society of language and literature and very much from the very title, you know, in the kind of Orientalist work. The Middle East Studies Association, like the American Academy of Religion, did not have very many panels on religion at all, unless it was part of past history. So it, it wasn't as if the traditional journals, or at least some of those journals, were places that I want to be publishing in. Also, I discovered early on, and I, I do this when I'm 
I don't mentor. People come and want me to mentor. I want to make that clear because otherwise it sounds fairly pompous when I mentor somebody. But what I always say to people is, depending on what you're publishing in, but in our field and many fields, you can publish both uh, articles and you can publish books. Books get you more visibility because books are out there. They're in bookstores. They're advertised in journals. They're advertised when you go to the annual meeting. You know, the, the, the publishers, they're not out there plugging the article that you wrote in a journal. So your name gets out there. And, and I honestly think that's, that's why at times uh, when I was elected, perhaps a president, I was the first president of Mesa, who was an Islamicist, and the second, following Jay McAuliffe, who had been our, our provost, uh, in, in the American Academy of Religions. And I think a, a lot of that, in terms of getting votes from people across the discipline, is that they knew your name, as well as people that then had yeah. used my book. There were other people who just knew that you were a name out there, and then they that got them to look and see, well, have you been publishing? You know, what have you been doing? So I actually, you know, very often say to people, it's a great idea. And then also practically, royalties aren't much to, uh, you know, laugh about either. So uh, let, me, let me probe your participation in professional associations. I, I get the sense that it's an important part of your life. And I talk to young scholars who don't quite understand why that can be useful for one's career. And so looking back on your career, how, how did those activities that are beyond your scholarship, yeah. how did they profit the field you were trying to build and your own career? Well, the first thing that does for a young scholar is if you, if you speak at conferences, A, people see your name and some of them may drop in on your talk, but they see your name occurring regularly. But you also have visibility. It's the place to network. You see, if you don't go to your professional meetings, it's naive. Then, then you're talking about, it seems to me, a kind of very old solipsistic notion in which you kind of say, well, I have my field, I have my books, that's all I'm interested in. The point is that nobody really, no greater audience knows you. And the networking is what then enables you to move up, get greater opportunities, uh, whether it's to publish because people get to know you, they invite you to contribute to something they're doing, but also to get job offers because you're, you're visible there. So, I mean, I always uh, emphasize, you know, that side of it. And, and where you see it too is that when you get nominated today anyway, in the old days they did it differently, it's usually because you have a nominating committee and the entire organization gets to vote on you. In the old days they could massage it was a kind of good old boys network in some of the organizations. So that's another part that's important because the nominating committees, I know that for example, the chair of the nominating committee, both for Mesa and for the AAR, because they were the people that had to call me, they weren't in my field at all. You know, and in my, the first time around, it was almost like, gee, how did you all on the nominating committee come up with my name? You know what I mean? And I was running against somebody who was, had much more of a history you know, in the organizations. So with, with younger people, I, I really believe that that's, that's the importance of doing it. it. It really allows you to have this kind of broader experience. Later on, it's not as important. If you've got a good publication record and, and you know, as it is, you're, you feel you have all that you really want to do, et cetera, then it's really not. I mean, so I go to uh, organizations, professional organizations, but I don't feel a great need to look to speak there or read or whatever. But for younger people, I think it's essential. 
Yeah, it, it seems to me it especially important when you're in a field that isn't huge and you may be the only one of your type on your campus, but you can see, you can, you can get to your people, as it were, and just exchange. Uh, it's a refreshment, almost, of, of your devotion to the field. I see that happening a lot. Let me uh, pose a question that I often have from, from uh, young scholars who, who finished their PhD, they have their first assistant professor position, and they sort of hit a wall. They, they didn't realize fully the juggling of teaching and course prep and talking to students, as well as scholarship, as well as service obligations. Thinking of them, how, how do you juggle these things? You, you gave us a, a little insight into sort of how you plan your day. I think, Tell us I think, more about that. I think a lot depends on people's personalities and also their work habits. I remember talking to a colleague who had a very good career at Holy Cross and went on to an even bigger career nationally as a, a leader in her field. But I, she was a good friend. And one day she was talking about the fact that, oh, with the teaching, et cetera, you know, I'm lucky if I look at something at Christmas. So I really don't really do anything until the summertime. And I just kind of said to her, you know, you might want to just think about figuring out ways to reorganize your day. Because I said, you're really putting it all into that one period of time. And if something comes up or anything goes wrong. So what I, what I think is important and what I did when I was even at Holy Cross, when I was chair of the religion department for nine years, for me, it was instinctive. It wasn't something that I rationally concluded. I guess it came from my experience. I think it's very important when a new person comes in for the chair and or other senior faculty or some senior faculty to really socialize a bit with them, you know, have a cup of coffee at school, et cetera, so that you can get into a conversation where some of these questions can come up naturally, you know, and where you can talk to people about how they can do it. Otherwise, you wind up with situations. I had one at Holy Cross in another department where a, a junior faculty member listening to a senior, very senior faculty member who had a very strong ego and was talking about the fact of what he was going to do in his sabbatical year, the junior faculty member said, you can't go on sabbatical. The whole group stopped and looked at him. And he looked at the senior person and said, there are courses here that need to be taught and things that need to be done. You see, and in other words, if, you, if you, you're making my load, you're heavier. No, that's not it. And so I think it's, it's that kind of thing. And also I remember speaking a couple of years ago, uh, I came out with a book with Daniel McGahan, of Gallup called Who Speaks for Islam? And we launched it uh, in the Netherlands. And at the university, a young fellow got up. I hadn't ever had it in that kind of context. We got up and said, I just don't understand. I mean, I, I don't understand. I'm trying to write. I'm trying to teach. I don't have time for writing. I'm teaching. Also, you tend to speak out. And I have to be careful about that too. The interesting thing was he wasn't doing it in a private conversation. I mean, you could see he was so taken by it that he just came out with it. And so I, he publicly, I just talked about the fact that you have to really learn, if you really want to publish, you have to learn how to organize your day. And I also remember asking a prominent uh, African-American professor during the civil rights days, he was at the University of Chicago. And I said uh, to him, how do you do this? You're teaching graduate school, you're mentoring, and you're also, he was an activist too, involved. He said, I learn to read more narrowly than I'd like. I read in my field and within the area that I have to work on. 
and what was happening, and again, younger scholars don't realize this, in the old days, there weren't that many books published as today. Today, on almost any topic, you're overwhelmed by the number of books and articles. And, and as that was beginning to build up, he was sort of saying to me, you want to think about that. You know, you can't, every time there's a, a great book that looks interesting to you, I mean, I could tell you, my frustration here is the number of books that I haven't, I buy and I haven't read. And I'm reading in my own field. And then I buy Bolton's book and I, I'm buying the new Trump book because I have to read those. And then I'm saying, well, wait a minute, I really can't because the Bolton's book is, you know, about 600 pages. But I mean, I think with younger faculty, you have to be able to do that and make them feel secure. Yeah. And also, if you do that, then if they're having issues with regard to teaching, they'll also talk that through. You know, yeah. I think that all of those things help. And, and I get the sense from you, a, a, a little bit every day is a lot more than a, a lot in a concentrated period of time. Oh, uh, yeah. 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 They, have to, they have to become comfortable with you uh, so that they can really talk honestly with you. I mean, if you're the chair and you're talking to somebody, yeah. unless you develop a bit of a relationship there, the person's naturally going to be guarded all the time. The, the time has flown, but I, I can't not ask you about the Islamophobia project. And, uh, you know, if you zoom out from it right now, what are the major findings that uh, you think will endure over time? Well, I think that, I mean, the first thing I would say even about dealing with Islamophobia, it wasn't until the third edition, I think it was, of a book that I did called The Islamic Threat, Myth, or Reality. And it was the third edition in the late 90s that I began to write about Islamophobia or discover it. We never used the word Islamophobia or really discussed it in media until the so-called Mosque at Ground Zero incident in 2010, when there was going to be a, uh, actually it was going to be an apartment complex that was also going to have a mosque and it became very controversial. Uh, and that's when for the first time, a major publication, Time Magazine, front cover said, is America Islamophobic? And, uh, and, then, and then I began to see the role that it played and into 2015, when you could then look at international media in Europe and America and conclude that Islamophobia become normalized. People weren't even aware of it, you know, or that it's an issue. And to be quite frank, you see it really raising its head with the election of Obama and the campaign and the people who are running for office. And certainly with the last elections where you had a candidate say Islam hates us and also say might be possible that we shut down mosques or have a Muslim ban. So I saw that developing not only here, but it's now global. And, and, and this is one of the takeaways. Islamophobia today exists in countries where you have no significant number of Muslims, like Poland and Hungary, okay? You have no significant number. And, and interestingly, they're also anti-immigrant, which has shades of relevance again to our politics today. So it was seeing this situation going global, becoming normalized and seeing people deny it. Islamophobia is not the same as anti-Semitism in terms of roots, magnitude, you know, over years, but it is in terms of the way in which the phenomenon occurs. One of the examples I give is that until a few years ago, I could take an article that was written about Islam and Muslims and put in the word Jew or Catholic and an editor would never publish it in terms of what was being said or they would fact check it. That wasn't going on. And, and then people were coming into the field writing about it, but I really thought we shouldn't be doing this just as individuals. We need to have a place where you bring together researchers that really explore and write on the phenomenon, not only in the US, 
but globally. And that's what we developed with, with Bridge. And, and we deliberately picked the title uh, that, you know, we were talking about protecting pluralism because that's really what it's about. What are the attitudes and behaviors towards Muslims? Would, would they be considered, those very attitudes and behaviors, would they be considered and be seen as legitimate if you made them about people of other faiths? Uh, and the amount of data that's there is astonishing. So what we have now is we have uh, senior researchers who are based uh, at Georgetown. And then we have senior researchers that uh, we have one uh, based in, uh, in Europe. We have uh, one based in Austria who looks at between the two of them, they cover Europe for us. So we can, we can give this kind of global perspective and write about it. But the biggest thing about our website, which is bridge.georgetown.edu, is to go, not just to look at the website, which is very interactive, but our fact sheets. That's the most important. It is quoted by major media all the time because in the fact sheets, you're not just having articles in which somebody can say, well, that's your opinion. We have fact sheets on everybody, but we have fact sheets on the president, members of the administration, whoever the president is, members of the administration, of people who, who are right Islamophobic things, of people who don't, we have fact sheets. So there you just see, you know, who are the people? What do they say? What are the implications of what they say? Just in terms of the facts. And we found that that has, uh, we now have about 1.2 million followers on Facebook. And I think it's because it is a phenomenon and, and, and one that is important. And we see it raised all of the time. I mean, you know, I, I'm doing, I put together a program, a webinar, which is gonna be brought out of London on uh, the 2020 elections. Uh, and you know, where will they go? And we're all writing, on Biden, you know, looking at the Trump administration, what will it be? But when you go to take a look at the influence of, of issues like Islamophobia or anti-Semitism or the immigration issue, you realize these are issues which have gotten, if you will, worse rather than better. We've taken steps backwards that most of us never thought it would ever occur. Well, John, this was delightful. I thank you for your time and it was great to hear your story. Thank I only you. hope, I have to tell you, my real concern is I only hope that I'll be able, I've done a lot of stuff on the internet, but to teach the class, I mean, my big thing is having, although with you now, see, with this technology, and I've got an even bigger screen, which I have to work on, then I feel I'm interacting with real people. But otherwise, I, f I found that when I started to do webinars in a regular basis, at first it was just, and so I'm very conscious of how students feel at their end but it's also from my end, I can't keep an eye on and just watch the eyes of everybody, you know, to see, am I holding them? Am I losing them? You know? Uh, I have a suspicion you'll do just fine. So thank you very much. Okay. Thank you.